If you're listening to this on the audio feed, you might have noticed that this episode is a week delayed, but you can get early access to our episodes by becoming a paying member. Hello, everyone. It's uh, great to see you on this warm Melbourne day with a cooler evening as the change came through. That was welcome. I'm Peter Singer. Um, I'm going to be in conversation with Richard Dawkins. Glad some of you know me. This is my city. This is where I was born, grew up, spent most of my life. I am now a professor of bioethics at Princeton University, but I've switched to doing that only half time, which is why I'm here at this time of year. And as many of you will know, I'm the author of a book called Animal Liberation. Thank you. And those of you who cheered, there's a completely updated edition coming out in, <laughs> in June, so don't forget to get it. But I'm, you're not here to see me, I know. You're, you're here to see and hear Richard Dawkins. I think you probably already know the basic facts about Richard. That's why you're here, but just to run through them. Richard was born in Nairobi, Kenya, in 1941, and his parents moved to England when he was eight years old, so he had some years in Africa. When he went to England, he studied at uh, Oxford University, not at eight, but 18, did zoology, uh, did his PhD under a famous ethologist called Nicholas Tinbergen, whose book on uh, the, the herring gulls or seagulls uh, I read when I started to become interested in animals. It was a very enlightening study that really treated animals as beings living their own lives, not just running rats through mazes and giving them electric shocks and seeing what happens. So he studied zoology, he became a professor briefly at the University of California, uh, Berkeley, and then went back to Oxford, where he was a fellow at New College, and became internationally known in 1976 with the publication of The Selfish Gene, uh, a wonderful book that we'll be talking about, and went on to have a really illustrious career writing a whole string of books. I'm particularly fond of The Blind Watchmaker, which came out 10 years later in 1986, and uh, other books we're going to be talking about, uh, The Devil's Chaplain, mostly about evolution, uh, The River Out of Eden, Climbing Mount Improbable, uh, really spreading information about evolution and its significance, and its significance in developing a view of the world without God. And that led to the writing of The God Delusion, which uh, perhaps is books that um, caused the most public controversy, particularly in the United States. And uh, he also founded, with proceeds of that, the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science um, and was appointed in uh, Oxford as the Charles Simoni Professor of, for the Public Understanding of Science. And he's been a tremendous promoter of understanding science and the importance of science. He's also written uh, two books of uh, essentially uh, autobiography about his life in science, uh, the second of those called A Brief Candle, A Life of Science. So I want you to join me in welcoming Richard Dawkins. <laughs> Wonderful to see you here, Richard, and, well, thank you and you, welcome to Melbourne. Let's get straight into it. As I just said in introducing you, I first came across your work with the selfish gene, so, so I think is a, a really wonderful book and got me thinking about evolution in a way that I hadn't before because I had perhaps somewhat naively thought, for example, that things develop because they help our species to survive. Oh, right. Um, yes, a terrible mistake, I know, but, you know, I was a naive young person then. So maybe you could briefly say where the level of evolution 
is. I mean, I guess the title, The Selfish Gene, gives it away to some extent, but where and, and why that matters, why it's important to understand that. It really matters because if you think about it, natural selection is the survival of something. And uh, the thing that's special about the gene is that if it survives, it survives for a very, very long time in the form of copies of itself. So a gene in the form of copies of itself can potentially survive for millions and millions of years. And so the difference between a successful gene and an unsuccessful gene really matters. The difference between a successful individual or a successful group or a successful species doesn't matter in the same sense because it's going to die anyway. The thing about a gene is that you come back a million years later and some of them have made it through and some of them haven't. So that's the significance of uh, why the gene is the unit of selection. So you, know, you gasped when I said I thought that selection was for the benefit of the species. Maybe oh, you can briefly <laughs> say why that's, why that's wrong. Um, we know that it's wrong. I understand why it's wrong now. But Well, because it's a very tempting error because, of course, you talk about... Um, it's, it's tempting to think that um, reproduction is often called perpetuation of the species, and so, and so you, th you think of it. But natural selection doesn't choose between species. Species is not the kind of thing that work to preserve themselves. If you look at a at an animal, and you say, what's its wing for? What's its teeth for? What's its tail for? You can give a kind of teleological answer to that. You can say it's about survival of something or other. It's not about the survival of the species. Nobody would ever say uh, the tail of a squirrel is there to preserve the species of, of squirrels. It's about the preserving the individual so the individual can pass on its genes. Right. I think, yes, but it is tempting to say, you know, say cheetahs were good because they stuck around because they could run fast. That's a... Of course, and that's correct. Uh, um, that's correct. They run fast and they pass on their genes because they, because they run fast. But you don't want to say the species cheetah survived because it runs fast because that's not the level at which natural selection acts. Right. Okay. So soon after the book appeared... There was some criticism, and some of it that I saw, perhaps because it was by a philosopher, uh, Mary Midgley, uh, focused on the title and claimed that the title was misleading because although we can be selfish, humans can be selfish, maybe some non-human animals can be selfish, but you have to be an agent. You have to have intentions in some way. You have to prefer your own interests, you know, so, so your child eats all the ice cream that was meant for the, your child and the friends, and uh, you say, don't be selfish, your, your friends should get some ice cream too. But genes don't have intentions like that, and they can't choose between eating all the ice cream or not eating all the ice cream, or whatever the equivalent is for a gene. So what's your response to the idea that it's misleading to say that genes are selfish or, or not selfish? Well, Mary Midgley focused on the title because that's all she read. <laughs> she, she confessed that later to Ulrika Segestrala, who wrote a book about her. And it's very clear because the, the very opening words of her critique were, Dawkins's main thesis is that humans are selfish. There's nothing to do with humans. I didn't write about humans at all. She assumed I must be writing about humans. And I wasn't. I wasn't interested. I'm not interested in humans, actually. Um, so, um, yes. And, and as for the thing, she said something like, genes can no more be selfish than biscuits and be teleological. It was, you know, a, a bit of sort of rhetoric like, like that. A philosopher of all people should know that you, you use language in a, in a special way. And, and I was using language, the language of selfishness, in a special way. When I said just now that the gene is the unit of selection as opposed to the species, the selfish gene was about that, saying if you want to 
talk about the level at which selection acts. Let's use the word selfish for the entity in the hierarchy of life which works to preserve itself, the selfish entity. It could be the selfish elephant. It could be the selfish oak tree. It could be uh, the selfish species. It could be the selfish individual. None of those work. The one level at which it works is the selfish gene. And so that was the point about the selfish gene. If she had read beyond the title to the book itself, the rather extensive footnote to the title, which is the book itself, she would have got the point. Okay, well, um, I'm not proud of anyone in, in my field who criticizes books without reading them carefully, so I'll certainly... Or reading them at all. <laughs> or reading them at all. <laughs> okay, so I'll certainly grant you, grant you that point. Still, um, is there no implication there? You, you said a moment ago you were not really interested in humans, but is, is there no implication that uh, altruism is either... And some people have said, maybe not you, that, that altruism is something that really doesn't evolve? I, I can't remember who no, it was. But no, so. there isn't. Um, the, the book is actually largely about altruism. It's largely explaining altruism. And several of the chapters in, in the book are explaining how you get altruism from selfish genes. So the selfish gene programs the individual organism to be altruistic. That's the point. Because that helps the selfish gene to survive. Exactly. It helps the selfish gene to survive if it programs the individual to be altruistic, for example, towards kin, towards those that, from whom it can expect to get reciprocation, say, and uh, you've written a book about that. So, yes, the, the selfish gene is precisely not about the selfish individual. It's about the altruistic individual. And does it allow for altruism beyond altruism towards kin, which it's fairly easy to see why that would help genes to survive, and reciprocal altruism, if you're in a cooperative partnership, then yes, that would help the genes to survive. But suppose that I believe that we should be donating some of our spare money that we spend on luxuries to people in developing countries far away, to complete strangers who yes. we'll never see. Yes. Um, Peter's written a wonderful book um, called The Expanding Circle, um, which deals with this and starts with the idea that you have altruism towards kin and towards potential reciprocators. And then the idea is it expands outwards towards members of your own species and then even to members of other species. And this expanding circle is a very noble idea. It does not follow from... Darwinism directly. Nevertheless, uh, because humans undoubtedly do have this altruistic impulse, the impulse to give to charity, uh, to donate blood, for example, where you're not paid to do so, to feel empathy, to feel sympathy towards individuals who are not only not kin, but haven't the slightest chance of ever being in a position to reciprocate towards you. You feel pity for somebody who's bereft and weeping and in great pain and great distress. We all have this, well, most of us have this feeling of empathy towards people, and that does need explaining. And it doesn't have a simple, naive Darwinian explanation. In order to get the circle to expand, we have to be a bit more sophisticated in our Darwinism. And I try to do this by suggesting that the altruism towards kin and potential reciprocators evolved at a time when our ancestors lived in small groups, villages, um, small bands like baboons. And at that time, everybody you ever met or had any 
strong acquaintance with would probably be your kin or probably be in a position to reciprocate. You, you knew everybody in the village. You knew that if you did a good turn to anybody in the village, there'd be a good chance that they would reciprocate later in life because you're going to be with the same people again and again throughout your life. Mostly their cousins anyway, or their uncles and nephews and nieces and things anyway. So natural selection does not build into us a kind of cognitive awareness of Hamilton's inclusive fitness equations. We don't, we don't actually, we're not programmed by natural selection to calculate coefficients of relationship. We're programmed with rules of thumb. And in our ancestral past, our original ancestral past living in villages, the rule of thumb would have been something like, be nice to everyone, because everyone is, tends to be kin. Be nice to everyone. That's the rule of thumb. Now, when you live in a big city like Melbourne, everyone is, of course, not kin. But nevertheless, the rule of thumb is still there. I liken it to the rule of thumb of, of um, sexual lust, where obviously the Darwinian function of sexual lust is procreation. And in the state of nature where there's no contraception, copulation tends to lead to reproduction. And so the rule of thumb is enjoy sex. And that works in, in the state of nature. It no longer works because we all use contraception. But nevertheless, the rule of thumb is still there. We still have sexual lust. In the same way, we still have a lust to be nice, uh, dating from the primitive past when the rule of thumb worked from a Darwinian point of view. So that's how I explain the expanding circle. And I have no difficulty in generalizing from that to other species, because once again, the, the rule of thumb builds into our brains a tendency to feel empathetic towards creatures who are evidently in distress or suffering, that kind of thing. Yes, I, I can understand that explanation, and I, I'm sure that it is a part of the truth. But, and again, perhaps this is because I'm approaching it from philosophy more than evolutionary science, but I'm, I think that our reason plays a role as well. I think clearly we evolved a capacity to reason, and no doubt that conferred advantages on, on those who could reason better, or the genes that produced reasoning therefore survived. But I think that once we can reason, then we can understand certain things. So we can understand that um, I would be miserable if I were not getting enough to eat, or I would be miserable if I was watching my child die from malaria. And then I understand that there are people elsewhere in the world, complete strangers to me, who are also hungry and unhappy because of that, or whose children die from malaria and they're unhappy with that. And I feel that that matters. It's not just that I have happened to have this desire, but that I would somehow be wrong if I ignored that and overlooked it. And if I didn't give some weight to the fact that their interests are like my interests, there's no really relevant difference. I'm taking a, you know, imagining myself as taking a larger point of view. And I think that that helps us to develop an ethic that is to a degree, obviously not perfectly by any means, but to a degree impartial in recognizing concerns for others. And particularly, of course, we talk about universal human rights and equal equality of all humans. You mentioned animals a moment ago, and I'm going to come back to that later on. But um, at least at that level, I do think that our reasoning is playing a role. I agree with that. And, and I, I mean, it's, it's not for nothing, Peter. I've described you as the most moral man in the world. And, and I mean, not only moral, but understand why you're moral. And this is what moral philosophers do. And I'm very glad that that's what moral philosophers do. I'm very glad we've got moral philosophers. And uh, when I think like a moral philosopher, I agree with you. It's not a Darwinian explanation, though. It's a, it's a rational explanation. Mm -hmm. It's when we apply our reason to moral questions. And we have things like the golden rule, which you then generalize. 
And um, I'm all for that and applaud that kind of application of reason to moral questions. If, if I'm asked for a Darwinian explanation, then I have to produce one. Mm, sure. So, but it's interesting then that, that the Darwinian explanation doesn't have to be all comprehensive, that it can leave room for an explanation in terms of reasons, reasoning process. So it's what you just said counts against the idea that we're somehow genetically programmed machines. Yes. Um, I think I put it, it's all of a piece with the question like, um, what's a Darwinian explanation for doing mathematics, doing philosophy, doing art, doing music. These are all things which don't have any obvious Darwinian survival value and they're part of the product of what you get when a big brain is produced by natural selection for no doubt mundane purposes of, of survival, gene mm. survival. And then lo and behold, it turns out to be big enough to have emergent properties uh, like the ability to, to do mathematics and the ability to do moral philosophy. Yes, I think mathematics is a really interesting example because no doubt there are survival reasons why you want to be able to count the number of tigers who went into the bush and the number of tigers who came out and work <laughs> yes. out if there's still a, a tiger there. But just from that capacity that, and to get to higher mathematics seems quite extraordinary. And you, you just sort of wonder, what's going on? How is it we, we stumble into this kind of realm of numbers and then we start having all of these complicated theories. Yeah, it's quite clear that, that there are in, there's massive emergence in the human brain, which yeah. just does things which in no easily understood sense contribute to survival. But nevertheless, having a big brain contributes to survival. And then it turned out to be big enough to do relativity and quantum theory, uh, as, as well as just counting tigers. Right. Okay, so let's um, talk a little bit about uh, religion and some of your, your views on that. I understand that you said that you had a fairly conventional Christian upbringing, that you uh, were a Christian until sometime in your teens. Uh, and one of the reasons why you're a Christian was that you thought that there needed to be an explanation of what appeared to be the way everything fitted together in, in nature, the design, in other words, of nature, um, until you encountered a Darwinian explanation, which you thought actually then was superior. And that led to your belief in Christianity falling away. Is, is that roughly yes, right? Yes, I mean, I, I suppose before that, I, I would have been a Christian because I was a child. As St Paul said, when I was a child, I fought as a child, I spake as a child, and so on. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Uh, not, not in the sense that St Paul did. Well, no, no okay. Um, but it's true that by the time I reached the age of about 15, I had a, a residue, not so much of Christianity as of a sort of deistic belief in some kind of the need for some sort of a creator. And um, no, more than deistic, actually. I mean, a, a creator who put together, who, who designed living things. And you're, you're right that then when I discovered Darwinism and understood it, I, that pulled away the last vestiges of religious belief. And when you wrote uh, The Blind Watchmaker, which I think is another marvellous book that I greatly enjoyed reading, was that a way to sort of get that realisation across to a, a wider public that uh, we didn't need to think that the watchmaker yes, or the designer I, was, was actually I suppose planned. I suppose it was. I mean, I, I, was, I was and am fascinated by the problem of design. It is a, a stunning fact about living creatures that they are, are both complex and, uh, and designed. I mean, they really, really look designed and they, they're beautifully designed. Uh, and so it's easy to see um, how anybody would before Darwin came along, would have been tempted to think that they were designed. I had 
I, I tell an anecdote at the beginning of The Blind Watchmaker about how I have, was having dinner in my college in Oxford, New College, with a, a very distinguished philosopher. Um, I didn't mention him in the book, but it was, in fact, A.J. Eyre. And he said, uh, I think I said something like, I, I, f- I found it hard to imagine being an atheist before Darwin. And he said, why? Uh, Hume managed it all right. So I said, well, how did Hume explain uh, the evident design, apparent design of living things? And he said, well, why does it need explaining? So I I sort of almost wrote the book as a reply to Freddie Eyre. And actually, much later, about 20 years later, he said, we again met at dinner, and he said, "Um, just read your book, The Blind Watchmaker. Glad to have inspired it, he said. Oh, right. <laughs> OK, yes. I, I knew Air as well. I attended some of his classes yeah. when, I, mean, when I, I was... I, I didn't mention him by name, but he yeah. recognised the anecdote. Uh-huh. Oh, I see. Right, yeah. even the book. Yes, yes, very good. OK, so... What, what uh, was your encounter with him? Do you... uh, so he, he was teaching classes. When I, I went to Oxford as a graduate student from after studying here at the University of Melbourne uh, for my undergraduate and my master's degrees, so I went to Oxford to do graduate work in 1969. And I think Air was pretty close to retirement um, then, but I did go to some of his classes in Oxford. He was most famous in the area that I was working in, in ethics. He was most famous for having developed... So, Air, let, let me go back a little bit. Air was part of this group uh, of uh, logical positivists, a movement in philosophy that started in Vienna in the 20s. Um, and essentially, the, the view was the only things that um, are really worth saying are things that can be verified. So it's like you know, it's verified through observation, through science, or they're just uh, logical truths, truths of logic. Um, And where did that leave ethics was the question. And Ayer's view was, well, if I want to say that uh, it's wrong to torture people, really what I'm saying is boo to torture. And if I want to say it's good to help people who are hungry and give them food, then I'm saying hooray for helping people who are, uh, sorry, hooray for helping people and giving them food when they're hungry. So it was called the the boo hooray theory of ethics. I think by the time I got to Oxford, uh, and Hare, uh, sorry, Eyre published that in a book called Language, Truth and Logic in the 1930s. By the time I got to Oxford, it was a somewhat more sophisticated view, but it was still basically along those lines. And my problem was that it didn't leave, again, much role for reasoning in ethics. I wanted to say, look, you can make arguments in ethics. You can argue that some things are right and some things are are wrong. And it's not just a matter of saying, you know, like you do for, well, we're famous for doing this for our football teams in Melbourne, of course, you know, hooray for Hawthorne, boo for Collingwood, which will evoke positive reactions in some people in this audience and negative reactions for others, I guess. But I I wanted to think that ethics was more than that. So let me just go back a little bit to the questions about uh, about God and religion. You have another book uh, called uh, The Devil's Chaplain. And the title of that book is a quote from, it is taken from a a quote from Darwin, who said something like, uh, I'm not quoting it word for word, a devil's chaplain could tell a terrible story of the cruelties and horrors of nature. And in other words, you know, if you were trying to make an argument for the fact that there isn't an all-powerful God, but there's a devil or something like that, or there's a powerful devil, you would just have to point to nature and all the suffering that occurs in nature. So I take it, say that was the inspiration that book. But I find that really interesting because it relates to the argument, which, which I, for me is the most powerful argument against the existence of God. In a way, the, 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 what you did in The Blind Watchmaker was to knock down a very powerful argument for the existence of God. 
But to me, the most powerful argument against the existence of God is the argument from evil. Now, if you just make that to a, a Christian and say, look, there's a lot of evil in the world, look at what Putin is doing in Ukraine right now, for example, then the reply will come, yes, but God gave us free will and free will is such a great good that it's worth it, even though some evil people will do terrible things when you give them free will. But the argument that Darwin imagines the devil's chaplain making is immune to that because it's not talking about the evil that humans using their free will are actually creating. But it's talking about what happens in nature, the suffering in nature. We've seen it here. I'm sure many people here will have seen the images when there were huge floods in um, the north of Western Australia and there was a dramatic photo of a group of kangaroos marooned on a tiny island, no bit smaller than this stage, and obviously about to be swept away by rushing waters. So there was no human evil agent causing those kangaroos to drown. And of course, this is something that, that is just going on all the time. Another, I think, rather horrible kind of response to the argument from evil is to say, well, yes, but Adam sinned and we all bear his original sin. And that's why there's suffering in the world. I think that's just a, an appalling moral view. Even Not only you... appalling moral, I mean, it suggests you believe Adam ever, ever existed. <laughs> well, that's true too, of course. That's right. But when you talk about the suffering in nature, then, you know, these, these animals that are suffering are not descended from Adam. So Yes. Darwin said uh, something like, um, I find it impossible to believe in a benevolent deity who would knowingly have created the ichneumonidae. Ichneumonidae are a group of wasps which lay their eggs in the bodies of other insects and then they eat them alive from within. This is very common. Um, parasitoid insects do, do that a lot. And it's not just that, that there is horror in nature, it's that natural selection is actually produces horror. I mean, it, natural selection is a horrific process. It's about violent death. It's about disease from parasitism. It's about natural selection is a cruel, horrible process which produces the wonderful elegance of a leopard or a cheetah, but it is a cruel, horrible process that does it. It's about dying, violent, horrible deaths, either because of predators or because of starvation or because of, of paras parasitism. And it has to be that way. Nat natural selection wouldn't work if it wasn't horrible. So that's an even more powerful argument against a benevolent deity. Right. Yes, I think it is very powerful. But that leads me to want to ask you a, an, another question. Um, so... I mentioned my, my book, Animal Liberation, and uh, I'll ask you something else about that in a moment. But just on this topic, I, in Animal Liberation, I focused on what we humans are doing to animals, both in factory farms in particular, but also, for example, in the fur industry or um, in uh, some use of animals in experimentation. But more recently, there's a group of people in the animal movement who think that we ought to think about the suffering of wild animals as well and whether there are ways in which we can alleviate that. And that's depending on, on what exactly we do. I mean, that may be a somewhat more controversial area. Now, you know, I think there are some things that we should do to relieve the suffering of wild animals, again, that, that we perhaps this time inadvertently cause. So if we put up windows that birds are frequently flying into and killing themselves, we might try to change that, put those stickers of decals of birds of prey that, so that they don't fly into it or something like that. But what about trying to intervene, intervene in nature um, to reduce animal suffering? you have a view about that? Well, good luck with that, Tim. You, you, you have the hope. It's no, I mean, I don't think you can get any, anywhere with that. Lions hunt and kill in horrible ways. Leopards hunt and parasitoid wasps. Nature is a horrible place. It's, it's violent and, it, and, and it's vicious. And you can't get away from that. It's part of natural selection. It's horrible, but it's true. 
And would that perhaps be a reason for saying that it's not such a terrible thing to replace a forest with a housing estate? Well, no. I mean, I don't think so. I, I think if, if you really wanted to, to you could shoot all the lions in the world and, and then the antelopes wouldn't get, you know... We, we'd have to distribute birth control for the antelopes, I suppose. Yeah. Then. I think you're on, on to a loser there, Peter. Uh, well, I, I'm... I'm... <laughs> I do raise this question in the, in the new edition of Animal Liberation coming out that I mentioned. I do raise the question, but I think we, I, I'm inclined to agree with you that there would have to be limits to what we can do in that, in that area, certainly. I would like to see very loud fireworks banned because they actually cause enormous amounts amount of right, distress. To, right. to, I mean, that's an easy thing to do. You don't, they don't need great big bangs. Uh -huh. OK, yeah, I think there are some easy things, but, and we can, we can put tunnels under freeways so that yes, animals don't yeah. cross them and get hit. But in, in general, you go to the South American jungle and everything is eating everything else, and um, that's what natural selection is about. Darwin was right about that. Right. He tried to mitigate it by saying, end is, is swift and merciful, but it's not. It's, it's not always. No. <laughs> okay. Right, I want to come back to, to the, the, the God delusion briefly. Um, we haven't really mentioned that. And I'm curious as to what you thought of the reaction in the United States. I know the book sold hugely there and you spoke there. And as I've lived quite a lot now, both in Australia and United States, and I was four years in England when I was um, in Oxford. Did you find a, a very different reaction in the United States to what you had in England or what you would receive well, here? Well, in, in a sort of obvious way, I suppose so. Um, it's true that the United States is a much more religious country. I found, oddly enough, I found that when I toured with the God Delusion in the Deep South, which is much more biblically fundamentalist there, I got very large enthusiastic audiences. And you can think, imagine why, because there are the beleaguered non-believers in the, in the South who turn out in their thousands when somebody like me turns up. Whereas you go to a sophisticated place like San Francisco or New York, well, there's no big deal. We know that, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, one of my first experiences of giving a talk in the South, I was in um, Charleston, South Carolina, and I gave a talk about animals of the kind that I usually do. And afterwards, there were groups of people, you know, there was an animal organisation involved and we were mingling. And a woman came up to me and asked, without any sort of preliminaries, said, Professor Singer, I want to know whether you think that the animals are going to be joining us in heaven. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. No, you know, no preliminaries. Do yes, you, yeah, are you a no, theist? Do you believe no, in heaven? No, you know, just, just the but, assumption. Yes. Um, and she was somewhat taken aback when I, when I said, no, because we're not going to be there either. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Uh, so just a couple more, more questions. Um, you've also been, um, I think, accused of taking a sort of a scientific viewpoint, if you like. Now, I know that you have, for 13 years, you held a chair for the public understanding of science and you set up this foundation for reason and science. But some people have pushed back and said, well, it's all very well for science to explain the material world out there, but there are things that science can't explain, isn't able to explain. And depending on how philosophically sophisticated they are or whether they, what they want to talk about, you know, they may talk about things that I think we would dismiss, maybe ghosts or phenomena like that, but they may be talking about the phenomenon of consciousness, for instance. Um, we've already talked a little bit about values. They may come into it too. Do you think, is there any area that is science is not going to be able to fully explain? Well, that's a very interesting question. Uh, I... I think first thing I would say is if science can't explain it, nothing can. 
but maybe nothing can. Um, I certainly don't think that any kind of, uh, if to take consciousness, for example, which is, which admittedly that's very difficult, and I don't think science has really made much inroads into explaining consciousness, and, and that's profoundly important, interesting question. But vitalism is not going to explain it either. So I think I, I stick my neck out far enough to say consciousness does must have a physical explanation of some kind. It may be that the human intellect is not big enough to solve that problem, although it's done pretty well on very profoundly difficult problems like quantum theory. I, I think that, um, that there may well be problems that are so difficult that the human intellect cannot solve them. And in a way, it's remarkable what the human intellect can do. Since it was, as we were talking about earlier, since the brain evolved as a, an organ for survival, for gene survival on the African savannah, why on earth should we expect to solve difficult mathematical, physical, philosophical problems? It's a wonder we managed to solve as many as we have. And there may be deep problems, like unconsciousness may be one, that are beyond the human capacity to understand. Maybe elsewhere in the universe there are superhuman, not supernatural, but superhuman beings which must have evolved by some sort of Darwinian process, I think, stick my neck out and say. Maybe they can understand them, but maybe we can't. Maybe that we will never understand them. But if we can't understand them, if science can't understand them, then certainly theologians can't, and certainly, um, dare, dare say, philosophers can't. Yeah, I wasn't pushing for the theologians, but uh, I was wondering about the philosophers. <laughs> Do you think that we will... Um ever get artificial intelligence that is conscious? Well, again, I, I, th I think I have to commit myself to saying that since I'm, I am a physicalist, I, I, I believe there's nothing beyond physical stuff in the brain, and we're conscious. At least I am, and I presume you are too, and everyone else is too. <laughs> yeah. Not solip solipsist. You know the, the Russell story about, about solipsism? He got, a, he got a letter from a woman who said, Dear Lord Russell, I'm so pleased to hear you're a, sol you're a solipsist. There are so few of us around these days. <laughs> so... Um, how do I get into that? Uh, we're talking about ooh, lots of... Uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, yes. I'm a physicalist. I, I believe that there has to be a physical explanation for how the brain does it. And therefore, um, in principle, it should be possible to simulate that in silica. And it's very hard to get your mind around that. It's very hard to imagine feeling pity for a computer when you pull the plug on it or something of that sort. Mm. It's something that's foreign to our nature. But I think I'm committed to the belief that it must be possible to simulate everything that we know as consciousness, everything that we know as, as emotions, etc. Yes. Right. And I guess the other question then is, will we be able to tell, given that we have chatbots uh, now that simulate this, but we have no reason to believe that they're conscious because when we understand how they're programmed, that doesn't seem to involve something no, like I that. No, I know. Yes. But I, I still think... I'm sure you do too, actually, that ultimately it must be possible. I agree. I think ultimately it must be possible. I, as I say, I wonder how we will know, how we'll get there. How, how we'll ever know. Yeah, yes. but that is what we Because the use. simulation could be so perfect. Yeah. I think yeah. that's the point about solipsism as well. That, that you, the only person you really know is conscious is, your, is yourself. And, yes. and, and so it's, you argue by analogy and you say, well, you've come into being in the same kind of process as everybody else. And so they must be conscious. And, and that doesn't bother us as a general no. living the world in the world. We assume that all the people we're talking to are conscious. But with artificial intelligence, we will get to the point where it, it should bother us. Yes. Are we treating this being yes. appropriately or not? Because if it is conscious, I think then it ought to be treated in a way that, as with animals, has concern for its interests. And if it's not, there's no interest to be concerned Quite. with. Yes. Yeah.
And I would then like to move on to some of the, these questions about animals. And just by way of, of preliminary, I think we first came into contact in the early 1990s when I was working with an Italian thinker about animals called Paola Cavalieri on uh, what we initially thought we were going to call the chimpanzee project. And the idea of the chimpanzee project was, was something like this. You know, I had written Animal Liberation uh, at this point 15 to 20 years earlier. It had got some attention, but essentially it hadn't achieved what, it, what I wanted it to, that is to awaken people at the very least to the terrible things we do to animals in factory farms and get them to stop eating them. So Paolo Cavalieri came up with the idea that said, look, let's focus on those animals who are closest to us and who we're not actually eating, but um, who you know, we can most closely relate to. And she suggested initially chimpanzees. And maybe in that way, we can bridge this huge gulf between humans and animals. You know, all humans are equal, we say. Animals are not equal. All humans have human rights. Animals don't have rights. That kind of enormous divide that people saw as separating humans from animals, we wanted to bridge. So we had this idea of collecting essays from people who might be sympathetic to that for a book called The Chimpanzee Project. And we wrote to you, and you firstly were sympathetic and was willing to write. And secondly, you suggested, why stop at chimpanzees? I don't know if you remember this correspondence, but um, you said, well, for example, there are uh, bonobos, uh, there are gorillas, there are orangutans. Um, they also, you know, whatever you want to talk about, about capacities, the way their cognitive capacities, the close relationships they form with their kin and their group would apply to, to those. Well, perhaps not so much to orangutans who are more solitary. So anyway, we ended up calling it the Great Ape Project. And you contributed a, an essay called Gaps in the Mind, which was against the discontinuous way of thinking about humans and animals that I just mentioned. This is this great gulf between them. And you illustrated this with something that I've always remembered. And it went like this. You imagined uh, a human, uh, a girl, standing on the coast of uh, Africa, I think you said in Somalia, um, holding her mother in her right hand, let's say facing this way south and holding her mother's hand and her mother was holding her mother, so the first one's grandmother, and on and on and on through all back through the generations until you got to the point at which you had got to the common ancestor of humans and chimpanzees, the great ape that we are most closely related to. And you estimated allowing about a yard per person that that might take about 300 miles. You would get into Kenya, but not as far as Mount Kenya, I think you wrote. And then you imagine this ancestors, ancestors, and great, 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 whatever, grandmother of us. In her other hand, she had the sister of the girl who, from whom we humans were descended. And so these siblings were facing each other, but then that one had her daughter and her daughter and so on. So you had first cousins, second cousins, all the way down until the line stretched back to the modern chimpanzee. And when you think about that and all of those gradual differences going on, then I think it does become very hard to think that humans have rights. You know, there's some point in this series of gradual differences that humans have rights and animals don't have rights. So that was, uh, I really still appreciate that you supported that, that project. Then we didn't have much contact for quite a while, but in 2009, you were making a program, or the BBC was making a program with you called The Genius of Darwin. And I was in Princeton at the time, and you were going to be in New York, and they asked if they could film an interview, a discussion that we had. So we had this discussion, which you can still see, although the, the BBC Genius of Darwin only took uh, short cuts of it, as you'd expect, but the full 40-odd minutes 
interview is still on, on YouTube. It's filmed somewhere near the World, World Trade Center, which at that time had not been fully rebuilt. But so we're in this big skyscraper with a distant view of New York. In I, the I watched it this afternoon. Oh, did you? Had a look at it. Yeah, yeah. It's this, good, yes. actually. Yeah. yeah, it's good. So um, we talked about the differences between humans and animals. And I think we agreed that ethically, even though we have obviously superior cognitive capacities and no non-human animal could understand what we're talking about now, that that wasn't really important for how we ought to treat non-human animals. And that question that, you know, Bentham asked this question back at the end of the 18th century, he said the question is not can they reason nor can they talk, but can they suffer? And I think you, you agreed with that view that that's what's really important. And I then ask you um, if you were eating meat and or if you felt you could defend eating meat. And you said, well, I could if animals had good lives. Again, I'm paraphrasing. You may not have said exactly this. And you're, if you watched it this afternoon, you may have seen it more recently than I did. You have. But you said, if animals had good lives and were painlessly killed, perhaps I could defend eating meat. But I expect that that's not the case. No, what really goes on is unconscionable. And I pushed a little harder and said, yes, but I think if you're eating meat, you have a responsibility to inform yourself about what it's like. And so now I want to come back and ask you, have you informed yourself? And if you have, are you still eating meat? I have not, well, I believe there's been little improvement. I mean, I think, I think it's probably true that animals are very badly treated in farms and slaughterhouses and being transported to slaughterhouses. We do not eat meat at home. Not a drop of meat ever enters the home. We don't make a fuss when we go out to dinner. If somebody asks us out to dinner, we don't, we don't say vegetarian. So. It's a compromise and uh, moved a fairly long way in being purely vegetarian at home. I have something, I mean, that, that same conversation I suggested, what about eating human road kills? Because if, they, if they've been not deliberately killed, but killed by accident, and if you had any reason to suppose that they didn't mind um, before they were killed, if they perhaps carried a, like one carries one, I, I carry a kidney card that says, that says you know, if I'm killed, I, my kidney's... I could carry a card saying, I don't mind being eaten if, I, if, if I'm... <laughs> and, um, and I think we realised then that what remains is a kind of yuck factor and a sort of um, taboo against cannibalism, which is very deeply ingrained in, in us. And I, I think I pay more respect to this slippery slope argument than you do, perhaps. I, I think that there really is a strong case for avoiding slippery slopes. And so something like even if very hard to think of an actual moral objection to eating humans, um, I wouldn't do it, and partly for yuck reasons and partly for slippery slope reasons. I do have an interesting, what I think is an interesting point I'd like to put to you. Firstly, on the Bentham quotation, the, the question is not can they reason, can they think, but can they suffer? It's also are they related to us? That's also irrelevant. It doesn't matter if they're closely related to us. If octopuses are capable of feeling pain, then that's what matters. Can they suffer? That's what matters. It doesn't matter that they are exceedingly unrelated to us. And so it's, it's not... The thing that's important about great apes should not be just that they're close to us in terms of kinship to us, which they are, but also whether they can suffer. Now, the additional argument which I want to put to you is this. If you ask yourself the Darwinian question, what is pain for? Why has natural selection built into our nervous system, built into our brains, the capacity to feel pain? And the answer is, of course, it's a warning to the animal, don't do that again. If you have just done something which causes bodily injury to you, 
physical trauma to your body, then that causes pain. That also increases your probability of dying. And so it's a warning to the animal, do not repeat. Whatever you've just done, do not repeat it if it causes pain. That's what pain is for. Now, that's uncontroversial, I suggest. In fact, I, I believe you could probably, by artificial selection, breed a, a race of animals that enjoyed pain. But that's a separate issue. Now, here's the argument I want to put, I want to, put to you. If pain is a warning, don't do that again, you might ask the question, well, why did it have to be so damn painful? Why couldn't, it, why couldn't the brain just have a little red flag that pops up? And says, right, like your self-driving car, doesn't it? Yeah, or even, yes, exactly. Not fully self-driving, but yes. lane don't, deviation. Don't do that again. Yeah. Well, possibly the answer to, to that is that the brain might rebel. There might be a kind of conflict between, needing, between wanting sex and wanting food and wanting to avoid danger and so on. So that's why it has to be painful. But now comes the interesting point. An animal which is less intelligent less capable of reason, the things that Bentham mentions, actually might need more pain in order to be deterred from doing whatever is injurious to itself. A very intelligent animal, like a human, might well require less pain. And therefore, it could be that so-called lower animals, animals that are less capable of reason and thought, might actually be more capable of feeling pain. In other words, the equation which we have unconsciously taken up, which is that it's okay to be unkind to animals because after all, they can't really think, they don't really, probably don't really feel pain. They probably feel more pain because they need to feel more pain in order to be deterred from doing whatever it is that they're just doing, the, the equivalent of the little red flag that, that pops up. It might actually need to be more painful if the animal is less capable of ratiocination. Now, that's a very interesting point. I'm sorry that the new edition of Animal Liberation has already gone to press and I'm <laughs> not going to be able to change it anymore and add that interesting possibility. Because, yes, I, I mean, it, it certainly does seem to be something that might have worked that way. Of course, you know, this gets back to consciousness and its inaccessibility in a way to science. And that is, is there a way that we can tell whether that hypothesis is correct? I think there probably is not. Um, it's, it's a plausibility argument, but it's a pretty plausible one. Yeah, it does seem so to me. Um, mm. And certainly, I think it has already been said that animals rely on their senses very much, um, you know, acuity mm. of, of vision or smell mm. or whatever it is. So At the very least, we should give them the benefit of the doubt in, anyway. I think yeah. that's a very, a very good point, yes. Thank you very much for that. I think we are at about the point where we should be moving to questions. So there is a microphone up there in the back of this central block. So if you would like to ask a question, you would make your way up there and we will have about half an hour for questions. Please do not make statements. This is not an occasion for giving us a speech about your point of view. It's for asking a short, sharp question, please. So. I would suggest questions to Peter as well as me, if, if I may. Uh, thank you. That's, uh, if you wish to ask a question to me, I'm, I think it's primarily your evening, so I'm expecting the questions to be mainly for you, but if somebody has one for me, I'll, uh, I'll take it. We have quite a few. It's probably already more people than we will have time for. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't mind who asked the first question. Go ahead if you want, uh, whoever's at the microphone now, and uh, then we'll, we'll go on. Please. Richard, I have a question for you. How would you define consciousness in your own words? That's a question for a philosopher. We have one on the <laughs> stage. 
I find it an extremely hard question to answer. It's, it's something that I think we all subjectively know we have. And I feeling of self-awareness, the feeling that um, self, uh, personal identity, the, the feeling that, it, that it's me, that's uniquely me, that goes back to when I first became capable of remembering anything. I don't have a philosophically sophisticated answer to that question. I think we each of us know inside ourselves what it means to be conscious, but I can't offer you a, an actual verbal definition, I think. So if I will just jump in a little bit. Firstly, I agree with what you said, but I think that's really self-awareness rather than simply consciousness. Because going back to what you just said about simpler beings without our cognitive abilities, they're not going to be thinking back to themselves and saying, I'm the same bird that was in the nest and now I can fly and I couldn't fly then. I don't think they're going to be thinking that, but they are going to be capable of feeling pain. So I think there's a level of consciousness that doesn't require self-awareness. But it is very difficult to define because you tend to define it with other terms that you then you know, need to go around in circles. Like you can say, well, it's having subjective experiences, but what does that mean? The philosopher Tom Nagel uh, wrote an article called What Is It Like to Be a Bat? in which he tried to ask what it might be like to be a creature using sonar rather than vision. Um, and he said there that for, the, for a being to be conscious, there has to be something that it is like to be that being. And I think that gives us a reasonable common sense explanation. So I think in an example I've, I've used, if there's a stone in your path as you're walking and you think, just for fun, you kick the stone along the road a few times, it's not a problem because there's nothing that it's like to be a stone being kicked. But if it was, a, let's say, an injured animal that was in the path, say a, a, a mouse, and you kicked it along the path for a while just for the amusement of it, that would be wrong because there is something that it's like to be a mouse being, being kicked. Now, I don't know that we can say more than that, but I'd say that's the difference between saying the mass is conscious and the stone is not. Yes, next question, please. Consciousness, there have been two... I'm speaking sort of as a last physicist, so I'm coming from a scientific point of view, not philosophical. But I've got a question. There have been two recent, relatively recent, I think major findings on consciousness. One was sort of Penrose Hameroff work that suggested microtubules in the neurons give rise to consciousness. And there's been some very recent work that suggests there's possibly a truth to that, but it's still a work in progress. The other one is there was a paper in Nature recently that suggested about a half a billion years ago there was a common ancestor which has given rise to a number of conscious orders, I guess, of of animals, including primates, I think uh, birds such as ravens and blackbirds, octopus, squid, etc. I guess the question is, should the focus of animal... Does this support animal liberation? And is it at odds with humanism, which sort of puts humanity above other creatures when there's 7 billion of us who, by, almost by necessity, then push animals to the background or other conscious organisms to the background? I think it's impossible to know what other organisms are conscious. And uh, I think the only reason we're, con we're confident that each other are conscious is because we, we, are, we come from the same sort of place. We look like each other. I have no idea whether octopuses are, are conscious. I have a strong emotional suspicion that they are. Uh, I, I don't know what you're talking about this half a billion years ago, a conscious being gave rise to primates and octopuses. I mean, half a billion years ago is long before that could possibly be 
be correct, I think. But if, if octopuses are conscious, then they will have, uh, have evolved it independently and they would very well may have. I don't know how we're ever going to know that. As for the Penrose theory, I am not qualified to judge that, but it's still a physical theory. It's not a, it's not, there's nothing mystical about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and um, maybe it was fifty million, not five hundred million. But uh, that's my well, no, it was if, a if, point. If, but if it was if it was a common ancestor of the octopus and the vertebrates, it's going to have to be a lot more than a 50 lot more million. than that. It's yeah. going to be more, more than a, yeah. more than a billion. But I, I think the interesting thing about the octopus, and I, I do think that octopus, I mean, it's very hard to explain their behaviour without assuming consciousness. I think. But you could say the same about the computer, couldn't you? That, uh... Well, it's. Possible, um, I suppose, yes. I think octopuses are conscious, but, but I, I couldn't defend that. I, I see, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, they, they weren't created with an intention to make beings to do things in the way that computers are. So I think that they, they probably are. Um, you, you did ask a question about whether this pushes animals into the background. Well, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, it's true that there's a lot of us, and in fact, we've pushed them into the background, and we've also, of course, greatly affected the kinds of non-human animals that exist because the number of chickens in the world now, I think, is you know, vastly in excess of, of the other birds of, of any individual species, and even, I think, close to equaling uh, the number of birds in total because we rear something like 60 or 70 billion of them each year. So we are pushing, um, we are changing things through uh, our dominance of the planet. There's no question that we, we dominate it and change it in that way. But ethically, I don't see that there's a justification for us ignoring the interests of, of the others, uh, given that, they, that at least it's highly probable that they do feel pain. Thank you. Let's have the next question. Hello. Right. When did humanity peak? When did it peak? When does humanity what? When did humanity peak, I think. Is that, is that right? It'd be nice to think we haven't peaked yet, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, I don't think that there ever is a peak in evolution. It just, it just goes on as, as natural selection uh, favours diff different things. It's, a, it's an interesting question whether uh, humans are going to go on evolving and there are reasons to think that we're a bit different in that we've rather feather-bedded ourselves and no longer are, are subject to the cutting edge of natural selection. Um, so it may be that um, we're not going to evolve any bigger brains, for example. If you look at our fossil history for the last three million years, the most dominant feature is the increase in brain size. Very dramatic. And there's no reason to think that's going to go on. In, in, in order for that to go on, it would be necessary that bigger-brained individuals have the most children. This, this idea that we peaked... Uh, I, this, this is kind of irrelevant, but I can't refrain from telling you... Um... I published Animal Liberation when I was 29 and I was appointed a professor at Monash at 31. And a year or two after that, um, an acquaintance said to me, it must be difficult for you having peaked so early. <laughs> okay, let's take the next question. Uh, this is a question for both of you. I, I'm assuming both of you are vegetarian, but not as far as vegan. Um, uh, I just wanted to know what you thought of hunting and fishing for the purposes of both survival and for sport. Well, I'll let Richard, you can go first and then I'll say something about my views. You may have both, you may have both answered this later and I'm not a big reader, so I'd answer it for my sake, please. I, I have no respect for anybody who hunts and fishes for sport. Um, and, and I think Richard explained that he's a, a vegetarian at home but not uh, always when eating out. And I think that's... no. A big step to take, and I appreciate that you have taken that step. I think that that's important because that's a great amount of your support for what we do to animals in intensive farms and slaughterhouses is taken away when you don't buy them to 
food consume at home. I describe myself as a, a flexible vegan. Um, I request vegan food when I can get it. We just had something to eat before this event and I'd asked the organiser to provide vegan food and it was provided. So um, mostly what I eat is vegan, but I'm not absolutely strict about that. Um, and particularly, I think the animal product that mo is most readily accessible that I think could best, best be justified is eggs from truly free-ranging hens because I think they do have reasonable lives. It's true that the males of the laying breeds will get sorted and killed within the first uh, day of, of hatching. I mean, it's also true that the laying hens, once their rate of lay drops off, or even after a year or so, will also get sent out to slaughter. But still, you could say, well, you know, they get to run around the grass, they have a good life, they're protected um, and fed, and that's not too bad. And here in Victoria, I know we do actually have pretty good labelling systems, and we have free-range eggs, and some of the boxes will even tell you how many hens per hectare they're running, and basically... I've actually been a chicken catcher before for a free-range farm. It's not as glamorous as you might think. Okay. Well, I'll have to watch that then myself. But I think, you know, you probably agree that some are better than others or... They're or, all heinous as far as I'm concerned. They're all, okay. All right. So anyway, um, I, you know, I do think that um, it's better to uh, avoid animal products, to be confident that you're not supporting suffering. Um, and you've just given another reason why it's difficult to be confident about that without being fully vegan. But I also you know, respect people who've taken serious steps along the way because I would rather have, you know, I, I would rather, let's say, that half the population did what Richard is doing um, than have 10% of the population being completely vegan because I think that would, you know, there would be more animal suffering continuing if 10% of the population were vegan but everybody else was eating meat all the time. Yes, let's take the next question. Um, could I have two-part evolution question. Um, the first, you may have already answered, so perhaps ignore, but um, given that contraception is largely taken up uh, more commonly in highly educated and less, perhaps less available to less educated people and perhaps um, also not taken on by more religious people, do you think we are evolutionary moving towards being less scientific? And secondly, um, how do you feel that artificial intelligence will impact evolution ongoing? I think the, fir the first question is, is about um, contraception being uh, more prevalent among highly educated people. And if there were a, a strong genetic component to that, then there would be a, a, an evolutionary trend. Um, it's controversial uh, how much of um, a, a genetic component there is. It, se it seems certain there's a strong genetic component in IQ as measured. That, that's been shown in twin studies, for example, where um, if, you, if you compare um, monozygotic twins, I identical twins, how much they resemble each other compared to fraternal twins who, who are less closely related. And you say, what is the, the extra correlation between identical twins to fraternal tw twins? Then IQ does come out fairly high. So there is, there is a strong genetic component in IQ, but you said educated and um, plenty of people who have high IQ are not well educated because of economic circumstances. And so I... I thought I, perhaps less scientific rather than less intelligent? Well, no, not, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I, th I think that, that um, it's probably hard to say that there, there, there's an evolutionary trend towards less scientific education, something of that sort. I, would, I wouldn't wish to say that. You're treading political, politically dangerous ground too when you get into that kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, the other question was about um, artificial intelligence, was it? How do you think artificial intelligence might 
impact evolution well, humans it, specifically? Well, it, it could be that if, if say, in, in, in a thousand years, we look, our descendants look back, it could be that there will be a, a strong tendency for humans to be, to have um, electronic components built into their bodies. You know, instead of carrying your iPhone around, it'll be built into your head and you control it with thought rather than with your fingers. Um, so there could be a sort of merging of of um, technology with biology. I'm not sure I would want to call that evolution because it's no longer, it's no longer genetic evolution. It would be a, a cultural evolution. And this is getting into science fiction, which I love, by the way, and, but it is, it, it, is, it is a fictional speculation. But it may not be fictional all that long, right? I mean, there are well, people maybe... working on this. Elon Musk was working on one of these programs that uh, got in the news recently because he was using monkeys and rather experiments that uh, they were not being well looked after. But it's possible, and I have to say, you know, I wouldn't mind having uh, some of my memory implanted in a chip that I had ready access to. Uh... So long as nobody else has access to it. <laughs> 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 that is an interesting question. It could be hacked into. <laughs> Good. Thank you. Uh, next question. Good evening, Richard. Um, it's an honour to be in this room with you. I'm Iranian. I was born a Muslim. Thanks to you and Christopher Hitchens, I'm an atheist now. And, um, <laughs> and um, I embraced uh, secular values. Um, I believe in secular values. And I believe that the Western civilization has made tremendous improvements and advancements. However, unfortunately, listening to people like Douglas Murray and um, Jordan Peterson, they believe that we should go back to the way things were, to traditional Christian values because of the new forms of religions uh, in forms of identity politics and tribalism that's being formed today, and um, that we should go back to Catholic values and Christian values and, and embrace where we came from. You know, these are the words of Douglas Murray. I don't agree with that. I believe that we should move beyond uh, what we are doing at the moment. Um, but I really wanted to get your perspective on this, and I highly value your judgment. Yes, Thank I you. think it would be a great pity if we, if we thought that in order to improve things, we had to go back to Christian values. So there, as you say, there are much better ways of doing things than that. Um, we should govern our lives by, well, moral philosophy, actually, rather than traditional uh, religious values. I, I even suggested... We should intelligently design our morals and our ethics rather than de derive them from some traditional holy book. Um, well, goodness, heavens above, let, let, let's, let's not do that. Um, so think about the holy books that are on offer, the Old Testament and the Quran. Um, it would be a, an appalling idea to base things on that. I, I'm delighted to hear you, your story from Iran, and, and I hear other stories similarly from other Islamic countries. Uh, Peter m mentioned that the God delusion had sold very well in, a, in America. That's true. But um, I can also say that it, an illicit Arabic translation of the God delusion has sold 13 million, not sold, has been downloaded 13 million times as a, as a PDF wow. in Arabic. Um, this is uh, not paid for. This, this is a free PDF. Um, <laughs> my my uh, foundation, the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science, is now actually um, translating my books, The God Delusion and others, into Arabic, Farsi, uh, Urdu, and Indonesian to try to, and, and again, for, for free, download as, as PDFs. And that, that project is flourishing at, at the moment. We're, we're having large numbers of PDFs downloaded in those Islamic countries. Very good. 
Thank you. Next question. Uh, hello. Uh, I am a woman, and it's not because I have a magical inner feeling that tells me that I am. Uh, but my question today would be, uh, following on, I guess, from the previous questions, uh, you've talked a lot about, I guess, religion, and we know there's a bit of a tension between religion and, science, and um, scientific uh, reason. I was wondering whether you felt that there was some degree of tension between scientific reason and political ideologies on both the left and the right. I know from my experience, people have been very resistant um, when I tried to explain, for example, the role of genetics in personality and aggression because of obviously the political tension associated with that idea. I was wondering whether you recognized that that was a phenomenon and how we might get past that in explaining science to people. So tension between scientific and political beliefs. Sorry, my, sorry, my bad, um, the microphone's too. I'm a shorty, yeah. Um, yeah, so tension between, uh, I guess, like the scientific, what the science tells us, which is, for example, that our genes have a strong influence on our personalities and our tendency to be aggressive. And that is, I think, politically inconvenient, particularly uh, for people on the left, which might explain why there was such a strong response to a book titled The Selfish Gene that this philosopher didn't even bother yes. to read. Well, I am aware that there has been a there was a political uh, pushback against The Selfish Gene. Again, I think because it was misunderstood as being an advocacy of uh, selfishness. If there were some scientific reason for pessimism, if there were some scientific reason for believing that humans were innately selfish, which I don't think necessarily, then I would, my feeling would be that it would be all the more reason to educate people to rebel against their genetic heritage. If there, if there was a genetic tendency to be uh, selfish, to be violent, to be aggressive, then I would wish to see that uh, overcome by education, and it would be a political decision to implement such an educational program. I have often said that Darwinism is such a horrible idea, although it's true, um, and we mustn't shy away from the fact that it's true. Um, insofar as we study Darwinism, it should be as a lesson in how not to organize society rather than in how to organize society. And societies which have aspired to be organized on Darwinistic lines have been appalling societies in which to live. Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, I guess the other part of my question is, Given that people on the left don't like these ideas, um, how would we go about communicating them despite... I think there's the... a confusion among some people on the, on the left into thinking that if, you could, if there's a scientific reason for believing something is true, then you should op oppose the truth of it rather than um, try to educate people out of, out of it. So that I've been attacked on the left in Britain, for example, by people who, who try to make out that it, mu it must not be allowed to be true that certain scientific things are there, because it would be so nasty if it, if it were. I prefer to say, maybe they are nasty, so, that, so then let's try to change things by education. But uh, let me just add, I, I think there's also a kind of a, a heritage of uh, Marxist ideology here, because Marx thought that there is no such thing as human nature, that if you transform the economic basis of society, you will transform human nature. So if we all own the means of production in common, then instead of having the egoistic, selfish individuals of capitalism, we'll have the cooperative, socially benevolent individuals of the communist society. Um, obviously, that didn't happen when the Soviet Union was established. But um, I think there is there's still a lingering 
of that tradition, which is an anti-idea that there is a genetic basis to human nature. Let's have the next question, please. Firstly, just thank you for the common sense and reason that you have both brought to our world and our lives. Uh, my question is quite simple. If Charles Darwin were sitting on the stage with you right now, what would you ask him and what would you say to him? <laughs> Something a little bit like that happened to me. A, a Japanese television company um, dressed up an actor as Charles Darwin. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he came to my door and knocked on the door and I opened the door to him and I, I knew it was going to happen. And I, so I sort of said, you know, I was delighted to meet you, sir, and, and, and come upstairs and, and we'll talk. There it was more a question of what, of what he could learn about what had happened since, since he was around. And um, so I was supposed to bring him up to date and I told him about Mendel, I told him about DNA and, and he played his part well and was duly enlightened by what I had to say. <laughs> um, um, well, I, I would be awestruck, obviously. I, I, I would be delighted to make his acquaintance. He was, uh, well, Dan Dennett said, if I had to give a prize for the, for the greatest idea any, anyone ever had, I'd give it to Darwin ahead of everybody else. So, yes, I, I would be awestruck. I, I, I'm not sure what I would ask him. I, I think I would just sort of vanish into quietness, really. Um, <laughs> All right, we have time maybe for two more Peter, questions. Peter, do you want to answer that one quickly? Sorry? Did anything come to your mind, Peter? Did anything come to my mind what, what about what I would ask Darwin? Yeah. So, as you know, I'm more interested in ethics. Um, I, Darwin said a lot of positive things about animals. Um, he wrote... One of his less well-known works is called The Expression of the Emotions in Humans in, in, in Animals. And uh, he says things like, you know, it, it is only a matter of degree. It's not, a, it's not that there's a wholly different kind of humans and non-humans. So I suppose I would invite him to look at what we're doing to animals today. Um, and again, I would especially focus on, on factory farming, which because of its scale, you know, that dwarfs all of the other things, harms that we inflict on animals. Something like 80 billion animals in, raised and slaughtered in factory farms each year worldwide. And I would ask him to comment on that. And this would be, you know, I guess I would hope that he would say something that could be used to try to reduce this. So this would be a rather more pragmatic question than uh, an inquiry. But I would, I would like to know what he would think of this world that we've created. Next question. Hi, Richard. Hi, guys. Um, this question is for my dad. So my family and I are ex-Muslim and... Just living in the age of social media, it's common for people to share verses of the Quran and like the Holy Bible, I guess. However, these are the posts that often get banned and accounts suspended. So what would you, like, what, what's your opinion on that? And is um, there something that you... Didn't can... quite hear something about the account suspended? What... Oh, so just when people express themselves, especially through verses on like the Quran, it often leads to account suspensions and... If they, if they criticise the Quran, no, just like general expression and just. So you can't quote the, the Quran on Twitter. You're saying without getting your your account yeah. suspended. Is okay. it particular verses that they that have been quoted? Um, yeah, like certain verses and certain ideas that it, are expressed are often. So they're verses that would be regarded as offensive to non people who are not pious Muslims. Is that? I think yeah, just in regards to like life. And I know your opinion on, like, the Quran and stuff, but... I've never heard of people having their accounts suspended for quoting the Quran. I thought rather the reverse, that you get your account suspended if you criticise the Quran. No, it's... Oh, that's not my information. Especially with, like, 
Islamic countries. Can, can you tell us what verses? Are you able to quote a verse so that we have? I, a... I wouldn't know. It's from my dad. Yeah. Oh, in, in in Islamic countries. Yeah. Oh well, that's different. You mean in Islamic countries, your account gets suspended? Yes. Oh, I believe that. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, yes. Well, my response to that, I I, I don't approve of your account being sus being suspended. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in freedom of speech. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Okay, um, I think we have to make this the last question. Thanks. Sorry about the others who are waiting. Oh, we should, thanks so much for coming to Melbourne. Just wondering how you reconcile the philosophical and ethical, understandable drive to be vegetarianism with the selfish gene that's got us to this point eating meat. Is that a question? Yes. How do I reconcile? Well, the, the drive to be vegetarianism with the fact that we've arrived at this point over many years as essentially or omnivores, but eating meat. Uh, yes, we have arrived as omnivores, and uh, there's no doubt about that, that we are biologically omnivores. It doesn't mean we have to be omnivores. We can have ethical reasons for uh, being vegetarian, and so we, we might have to take special dietary steps. I don't know whether Peter takes extra vitamin pills or anything like that. I, I take B12. That's the only supplement yeah. that I take. Um, so, but we are, we are we're omnivores. We're not... I, if we were intelligent lions, then I think it would be probably impossible, and um, uh, it wouldn't. The, the ethical um, considerations would be overruled by dietary ones. But, but we're omnivores, and so we can we can cope with it. Good. Uh, I'd, I'd like to push back a little bit, if you don't mind, about the assumption there that because we've evolved in this way, therefore, in some way, it's it's all right to continue to do it. And I think that's not true because we've also evolved through a lot of violence and conflict. Um, and, uh, you know, those humans who are around today, probably our ancestors, got rid of some other people. Um, certainly, you know, we're here in Australia. We know that if we're, of, if we're not of Indigenous descent, then we know that our ancestors, or, or, well, not all of us, depends when our ancestors came, I suppose, but that a lot of them did push Indigenous people off the lands. But that's no justification for continuing to do so or saying, therefore, because we got here by that reason... That way, it's okay to keep doing it. We're so. involved to walk around naked. <laughs> Good. I think we have to bring this to an end. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, thanks very much, Richard. But before uh, I do thank this and uh, end it, so let me say uh, it's been a great pleasure having you here and, uh, and talking to you and having this conversation. I've greatly enjoyed that. Some of you have bought VIP tickets. Uh, I want to remind you that we will, you get a chance to mingle or have books signed or something like that uh, after the uh, event closes. So you will be shown where to go. And for the rest of you, thanks a lot for coming, making this event uh, such a successful one. Thanks for all of those who got to ask questions. Apologies for those who didn't. And have a good rest of the evening. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of The Poetry of Reality, you might consider subscribing on thepoetryofreality.com. That way you get the content without the ads. Anyway, thank you for listening and see you next time.